The Where Our Minds Wander podcast may contain sensitive content. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings, fellow wanderers, to the places our minds wander. Where strange lights speed beyond reason across a clear night sky. The house at the end of the road where disembodied voices whisper and strange noises make the living shiver. Lurking shadows hiding on the edge of the woods just outside your back door. Odd true events throughout time that lead you down the rabbit hole. I'm Wes. And I'm Beth. And this is where our minds wander. Hello and welcome to Where Our Minds Wander, all you fellow wanderers. I'm Wes, and that's my wife and co-host, Beth. Hello, everyone. Do you like the thrill of finding something cool and unusual, perhaps in the attic uh, of the house you're renovating, or maybe just digging outside, putting in a new garden, or doing some landscaping in the yard? Yeah, that would be cool. People find all kinds of things in their homes when they remodel, from loan shoes to newspapers dated 100 years ago. Glass bottles are pretty common finds, but so are styrofoam cups. People have even found drawings and murals under old wallpaper. That would be so cool to find something like that. I'm going to talk about a rather unsettling discovery in one couple's backyard that has a somewhat happy ending. Oh, okay. When the 1906 earthquake hit San Francisco, the death toll was pretty substantial. In the 1930s, however, hundreds of thousands of graves were moved from San Francisco to Colma because city developers saw housing potential on those plots of land. According to researchers, all the work was done manually because the caskets were not required prior to that. Not all the recovered bodies were in funerary boxes. Those that were in caskets were in varying states of decomposition, often somewhere between bones and dust. Because of this, remains would be placed into new caskets or small boxes, which could cost as much as $2.75 a piece. That's an expensive endeavor. If it was hundreds of thousands of bodies at $2.75 a piece? Yes, so you can imagine mistakes were made. I bet. While the bodies were moved at no cost to the families, the headstones weren't, causing many to be left behind. Reportedly, the city and the county department of public works repurposed the abandoned headstones into seawalls and gutters around San Francisco. Grave markers still occasionally washed up on the beaches. Since the mass relocation of graves, there have been several occasions when forgotten graves have been rediscovered. One of the first discoveries was made during the remodeling of the Gleason Library, which had been constructed over a former Masonic cemetery. During the reconstruction, Nearly 200 bodies were found when construction workers plowed directly into a hidden mausoleum. Another discovery was made in 1993 at the Legion of Honor Museum while the site was undergoing renovations. In this case, 750 bodies were unearthed that had been buried in what was once the Golden Gate Cemetery. Yikes, that couldn't have been pleasant. No, in 2012... Visitors to Ocean Beach discovered the intact marble tombstone of Delia Presby Oliver, dated 1890. Delia's gravestone was part of a makeshift seawall as an attempt to prevent erosion. Erica Carner, 
grew up in San Francisco and remained in her childhood home after she married and had a family of her own. She and her husband, John, on numerous occasions, heard what sounded like a toddler walking across the floor above them. They did have daughters of their own, but neither girl would be upstairs at the time. Hmm. In 2016, they hired construction workers to do some remodeling on their home. The workers also reportedly heard unexplained footsteps in the house. And then while working in the backyard, the workers unearthed a funerary box marked Miranda Eve. Inside was a coffin made of cast iron and glass. The airtight casket held the well-preserved body of a child. Oh, no. The 140-year-old body was unaffected from the elements. The little girl dressed in a white dress still had lavender placed in her hair. I, I can't even imagine all the feelings that that family must have felt when they, when they found that child. You know, like sadness for sure, because it's a child, but, you know, curiosity too. And then probably a feeling of what the heck do we do now? I know. Funerary boxes made of glass and cast iron were popular in the 1800s among wealthy families. Touted as the next big thing, glass coffin ads claimed they would protect the departed from the elements and vermin. Loved ones placed inside such a coffin would not decompose and would retain their youthful appearance forever. There were even little viewing windows in the lid. Glass coffins for adults proved to be a problem. They were constructed of massive pieces of glass, which were incredibly heavy, and of course would shatter or crack if dropped. Very few were actually made. The smaller child-sized coffins were more popular, especially since late 19th and early 20th century salesmen often carried miniatures of the products, which operated just like full-size versions to make customer pitches. A salesman might carry a case that revealed a tiny burial vault with a granite top that could be lifted to show a grave among some fake grass or miniature coffins with removable lace pillows and working clasp. I, I know it's morbid, but I'd like to see one of those. Like, I don't think I'd want one in my house, but I'd like to see one in a museum or something. Carner's children began referring to the little girl in the glass coffin as Miranda Eve. The Carners contacted the Office of Public Administration, who contacted genealogist Elisa Davy, who operates the nonprofit Garden of Innocence, a project which aims to identify children. Davy and her team were able to perform a DNA test on the little girl's hair. According to the LA Times, Davy and her team spent an estimated 3,000 hours conducting research to figure out who Miranda Eve was and why she had been buried in the Carner's backyard. They began by finding an old map of an odd fellow cemetery and comparing it with the existing neighborhood. Next, the team used the internet to locate open records of births and deaths, and they were able to find matches and link Miranda Eve to a family. Oh, good. Miranda Eve was actually Edith Howard Cook, the daughter of Horatio Nelson and Ethel Scoffey Cook. Edith passed away on October 13th, 1876, at two years, 10 months, and 15 days old. She was accidentally left behind when the rest of her family was moved to Colma. But at least now, the child had her name back. Edith came from a distinguished family. She was buried in a beautiful white dress, and her family had woven flowers into her hair and placed lavender on her chest inside the casket. 
Through research into her family tree, the Garden of Innocence determined that Edith's family was prominent in San Francisco in the 19th and 20th centuries. Extensive research revealed that the Scoffees family member of Edith's mother's side were pioneering Greek immigrants who came to San Francisco during the gold rush. Oh, that's cool. Oh, on the Cook side, Edith's father, Horatio, operated a leather belting business, which was passed down through generations until the 1980s. Both Horatio and Ethel were well-respected within the community, and Ethel was revered as a beauty. After discovering Edith's identity, Davy teamed up with Jelmer Erkins, an anthropologist at the University of California, and they were able to track down Edith Cook's only known living relative, her grandnephew, Peter Cook. Peter never heard of Edith, so they swabbed his saliva to guarantee it was a match. Miraculously, they confirmed that Edith Cook was Peter's great aunt. This discovery came as a surprise to Peter, whose father passed when he was only three years old. As a result, he didn't know much about that side of his family. Through more research, Garden of Innocence tracked down Edith's funeral records, which indicated that Edith had suffered from marasmus, a form of severe malnutrition common in the 1800s caused by viral, bacterial, or parasitic infections, which prevents absorption of nutrients. Erkin speculates that Edith may have contracted another disease on top of her already weakened immune system. Public records indicate that Edith also had a brother and a sister, both who lived into adulthood. Garden of Innocence volunteers crafted a new personalized funerary box for Miranda Eve, which they lined with purple felt and yellow flowers. Collectively, the nonprofit spent nearly $10,000 to identify and rebury Edith H. Cook. Alyssa Davy attended Edith's 2017 memorial along with Cook's grandnephew, Peter Cook. Many local residents came to show their support, and those who want to know more are encouraged to research Edith Cook. Her gravestone literally reads, Google me. Oh, what a great ending. I love that. You know, in other episodes we've done, like Bella and the Witch Elm or the Somerton Man, all I really want for them is to have their identities back and to be remembered. So I love that Edith has her name back and people are being asked to remember her. I'm so glad you did this story. Yeah, sort I, because, you know, this had a happy ending. It did. Hey, did you know William Shakespeare invented over 420 new words during his lifetime, many of which we still use today. Lonely, for instance, and bandit, and lackluster, and bedazzled. But there are some words coined by the bard that just didn't catch on. For example, slugabed, a lovely term for people who lay around in bed all day. We don't recommend calling your teenagers slugabeds, even if it might describe them. And then there's Shakespeare's endearing term for a wife, kiki-wiki. Yeah, we won't be using that in this house. Whatever you say, kiki-wiki. Nice. Who'd have thunk it? So Beth, what piqued your curiosity this week? I'm going to talk about a strange UFO encounter at Falcon Lake in Manitoba, Canada. Stefan Stephen Mahalik, an industrial mechanic and amateur geologist, would often travel to Falcon Lake, Manitoba to hunt for quartz and silver in the 1960s. On May 20th, 1967, however, he found more than he bargained for. Mahalik was working on his claim in the early afternoon along the shore of the lake 
when suddenly he was startled by a flock of agitated geese in the sky. Looking up, Mahalik was stunned to see two glowing red cigar-shaped flying objects with humps in the middle. The objects were in a steep descent when one of them stopped abruptly. The second continued to descend and landed on a rocky outcropping just 160 feet away from him. The first craft, which had been hovering, flew off. Unseen by the landed craft, Mahalik observed it for 30 minutes, sketching exactly what he saw. The craft had taken on a more oval shape and looked like the quintessential flying saucer. It spanned between 35 and 40 feet wide and reached about 15 feet tall. But Mahalik didn't immediately think alien. He assumed it was a human-made experimental aircraft, and he even assumed it was American. And as he was an industrial mechanic, he began to think that perhaps he could offer some help. Now that's some Canadian hospitality. (laughs) You know, I don't think I'd be offering to help right at first. I think I might stay hidden a little bit and then observe what's going on and take it from there. I know. He was was very willing and brave. That he was. (laughs) So Mahalik approached the craft. He looked for any identifying insignia, but found none. As he got closer, he could hear a humming sound. But he also noticed that the craft appeared completely smooth. There wasn't a single visible seam. And he described the smooth sides as being almost like glass, shifting in color between gray and red like hot stainless steel. A golden glow seemed to emanate around the vehicle as well. Now that's ominous. Mm Mm-hmm. Accounts differ as exactly where the opening was. Some say in the bottom half, others in the top. But regardless, a door did open in the craft, emitting warm air and the stench of sulfur. Not only that, but Mahalik could hear voices. Two voices, in fact, with one a much higher pitch than the other. Still believing the occupants to be human, Mahalik called out, first in English so the Yankee boys would understand him. (laughs) When that got no response, he tried Polish then Russian, then German, nothing. So he's a pretty educated man if he knows that many languages. Yeah, definitely. Knowing that he had heard voices, Mahalik walked even closer after donning his welding mask out of precautionary measures. Can you imagine if they were an alien and they saw him coming with his welding mask on? I I can imagine where he was going through their little alien minds. (laughs) Still thinking the human occupants inside needed mechanical help and that they most likely hadn't heard him over the humming of the craft, Mahalik got even closer, peering inside the opening. He said that at first he saw a maze of blinding horizontal and diagonal lights, but he also marveled at how the interior of the craft didn't show any signs of welding seams either. What he didn't see was a single occupant. Suddenly, the opening slid shut, and as Mahalik stepped back, he inadvertently touched the craft, burning the fingers of his work glove immediately, like melting the fingers. The unmanned craft began to rotate counterclockwise, revealing a panel with a grid of holes, and then a massive jet of hot gas hit him. Hit in the chest and stomach, Mahalik's shirt was instantly aflame. He ripped it off immediately, trying to put out the fire as the craft sped away. 
Now I'm wondering if he's thinking to himself at this time that it's a nuts and bolts crap from this earth. He, throughout his entire remaining life, he never said it was alien. He always said he thought it was human made. Interesting. Immediately nauseated and disoriented, Mahalik vomited. Then all he could think to do was return to his hotel room, which is interesting to me that one of his first thoughts was just to leave the area. Go back to something familiar. Right. And it's unclear to me whether he had his own vehicle or whether he walked, but a Royal Canadian Mounted Police Patrol officer noticed Mahalik and stopped him, thinking that the man was drunk, even though he smelled no alcohol on him. The officer claimed he offered to help the injured Mahalik to a nearby hospital, but Mahalik refused. Mahalik later claimed that the officer was very dismissive of his story and refused to offer him any help. When he got back to his hotel, he did inquire about seeing a doctor, but was told that the local doctor was out of town. Mahalik rested in his room, and then he called his wife, saying he would take a Greyhound bus home. Which is also really interesting if he did have a vehicle there. Like, it wasn't clear to me whether he had one or not. But if he did... That's even more strange that he would tell her he was taking a bus home. Once he got home, he did go to the Misericordia Health Center, and he was admitted to the ER because Mahalik was really hurt. Wow, this guy was pretty hardcore. He was no cream puff. No, not at all. When the craft shot the hot gas that burned his shirt, it also scorched a strange grid pattern into his chest and stomach. And I've looked at it over and over in pictures online, and I cannot figure out what could have caused it. Because I thought, okay, maybe it's a barbecue grill, you know, maybe like they said he was intoxicated, like maybe he had burned himself on the grill, or it was some part of a car engine or something. But it doesn't look anything like those things. It's a five by four grid of perfectly round and perfectly spaced sores that spanned from about his mid-chest to his lower stomach. Hmm. And the sores never really went away. They left marks that throughout the rest of his life would flare up. He also suffered from prolonged bouts of diarrhea, headaches, blackouts, and weight loss. So much so that he sought treatment at the Mayo Clinic. There, doctors determined that Mahalik was of sound mind and that his symptoms, including a drastically low lymphocyte count, were most likely caused by radiation poisoning. Oh, wow. Mahalik didn't initially keep his experience to himself, a decision he later regretted. He first shared his story with the Winnipeg Tribune, which published it under the heading, I Was Burned by UFO. He subsequently published his own account of the incident as well. So I imagine at some point, the men in black showed up. They may have. I don't know. But I know for sure that the government did get involved um, from two countries. Initially, they were dismissive, of course. There was still the belief that Mahalik must have been intoxicated and somehow injured himself. Some even went so far as to say he concocted the whole story to keep people off of his claimed land. Hmm. But... Again, after looking at the photos of his injuries online, I don't see how he could have possibly burned himself. I mean, if it was one piece of extremely hot metal, I think it would have left some sort of sign of its edges on his skin, 
like I don't know if it's like a grid right. with holes in it. You would if you have to press it. I mean, on to yourself, even repeatedly burn yourself that many times. Yeah, that would be overwhelming to the point and, where you would probably pass out. Yeah, and if it was a a s- small singular thing that he was using, yeah, those burns were so evenly spaced. I, I just don't see how you could do that to yourself over and over, and especially if you're looking down. Try, like I don't get it. Not even with alcohol on board. Yeah. No. The U.S. Air Force, operating under the Condon Committee, otherwise known as the University of Colorado UFO Project, found the evidence inconclusive and stuck with the whole hallucination due to intoxication theory. But the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and the Royal Canadian Air Force both came out saying it wasn't a hoax and deemed it unexplained. Other agencies were involved as well, including the Canadian Department of Health and Department of National Defense. The U.S. Aerial Phenomena Research Organization also joined the efforts. Initially, Mahalik was unable to assist in these early searches for evidence at the scene because he was still unable to eat solid food because he was so sick. But once he recovered enough, he did help out. And they did find some very compelling stuff. I bet they did. First, there was the radioactive metal removed from the site. You can see that online, too. Then, there was the 15-foot burn circle around the outcropping where, even today, 40-plus years later, no vegetation will grow, despite the abundant vegetation and foliage on nearby outcroppings. Perhaps it's still due to the highly radioactive elements that were found within soil samples taken from the burn circle. However, some claim it's just because there's a radium vein near the site. That doesn't explain why that one outcropping would be affected and not the rest. The Falcon Lake event was featured on Unsolved Mysteries Season 5. And Mahalik never once strayed from his story, despite him and his family being harassed by members of the public. His son, Stan, was also bullied at school. And just to be clear, I know I said it already, but Mahalik never once said he thought it was aliens. He always believed it was a human-made craft. That's interesting to me. Yeah. I really would have thought he would have came to the conclusion that it might have been something otherworldly. Maybe privately, but he never publicly said that that he thought it was anything other than terrestrial. Hmm. Stan Mahalik has also always stood by his father's story, even publishing a book about it in 2017. In 2018, the Royal Canadian Mint released a $20 silver coin depicting the event as the first of its Canada's Unexplained Phenomena series. Along with the coin, they issued the statement, quote, According to Stefan Mahalik's account, two glowing objects descended from the sky on May 20th, 1967, near Falcon Lake, Manitoba, where one landed close enough for him to approach. When the craft suddenly took flight, its emission set Mahalik's clothes ablaze, leaving him with mysterious burns and an unusual tale to tell, end quote. The Canadian government has not released any of the formal documents pertaining to this case. You know, the thing for me, though, I don't understand why an educated man like him who spoke different languages would approach a craft like this 
and not have some kind of apprehension. Well, I think he did. I think that's why he put his welding his welding helmet on. <laughs> that's not going to protect the rest of your body. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's a strange case for sure. And I don't recall seeing any FOIA documents being released related to this uh, case. No, and the Canadian government has done a whole series of coins. Um, his was the first of the series, but there's like 20 of them. So there are many documented cases in Canada. I just haven't heard about very many of them. Yep. Well, I definitely believe he saw something, perhaps not of this earth. I agree. I'm really not sold on the nuts and bolts terrestrial theory. theory. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I guess this about wraps it up for this episode. Yeah, we'll see all you wanderers again next week. See you soon. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to traveling with you again to the places where our minds wander. If you like what you heard, please take a moment and provide us with a five-star rating and a comment. It really helps us move up the list so people can find us. See you next week for an all-new episode of where our minds wander.